He's making a fucking sweater back here. I'm trying to put Tiger Bomb on this jungle's nuts. Yeah, so that's what he looks like. So the guy that we're talking about today looks straight like Danny McBride out of Tropic. Welcome to the Four Corners Crime Cast. My name is Jake. My name is Rory. I'm your host, Katie, and today we're talking about Robert Fry. Bobby Boy. Yes, another one. Another Bobby Boy. And before we get into Bobby Boy this week, uh, we have an update on one of our previous ep- uh, episodes. Yes, so yesterday, which was March 20th, the body of Gannon Stouch was found in Pace, Florida. Now, for those who don't remember, that was one of the children that were missing on our bonus episode two weeks ago. What do we know about the discovery so far? Um, we pretty much just know that a Florida Department of Transportation worker spotted his remains under a bridge. And we have absolutely no idea how he was 1,400 miles away from where he went missing in El Paso County, Colorado, all the way in Pace, Florida, which is near Pensacola. Yeah, that's a long ways. And it's a long drive. I've driven there. So have they filed any more charges against the stepmother, Gannon's stepmother? Yeah, they filed nine additional charges on top of the one she was already facing for first-degree murder. And that was before they found his body. Uh, Okay, so it looks like Letitia Stouch is going to be up against it here. And uh, so we'll bring you any updates on that that we get. All right, so back to this episode. Where did you do your research on this one, Katie? This one was Monster Slayer by Robert Scott. I like the name of that book. I'm not sure what it reminds me of. It's like Monsters, Inc., but the adult version. Where are we going for this one, Katie? This one is in Farmington, New Mexico, which is 182 miles from Albuquerque and around 60 miles from the Four Corners Monument. So kind of north-ish? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I've been through Farmington and Shiprock. Robert Fry was born August 18, 1973, to James and Gloria Fry. Robert was the last child to be born to the family with two older step-siblings and one older sister. So he was the small Fry? <laughs> yes, he was the small Fry. Fry's childhood was as normal as anyone else's, with him being described as happy and friendly. He had good role models, as his father worked construction and other jobs for the city, and his mother ran a women's shelter for domestic violence victims. She also offered a 26-week course for domestic violence perpetrators to help control their anger and hopefully reduce recidivism rates. Now, are there any stats that this is actually helpful, or does it actually work? Not in her case. There is domestic violence courses that do help somewhat, but usually recidivism rates are pretty Pretty steady. Yeah. For our listeners who, like myself, might not know what recidivism is. Recidivism. Recidivism. I had to look it up. Um, You want to let them know what that means? It's just your reoffending rate. If you go to prison, it's your chance at reoffending again. Nice. So now you've all learned a new word with me today. Although she was surrounded by violent men constantly, Gloria seemed not to notice it in her own child. Fry was described as becoming agitated when stressed at a young age, and eventually prescribed Ritalin to control his emotions. This did not work, and he continued to spiral downwards, especially in his schoolwork. According to a psychiatrist, Fry had low self-esteem and felt a lack of acceptance from his peers. Was he a skinny, weird-looking, ugly kid? He was a relatively skinny child, and was often bullied or even beat up for his looks. Because of this, his grades began to fall, but Gloria had an entirely different outlook on what happened. In one of the strangest excuses I've ever seen a mother make, she said, quote, When Bob was in the first grade, he was left-handed. He went through kindergarten okay and got into first grade. I can remember him coming home and saying, I was tested today and they told me I'm right-handed, and he was very disappointed. Anyway, his teacher had laid a pencil on the desk, and whichever hand the child picked the pencil up with, that was her test. 
but because Bob had something in his left hand at the time, he picked up the pencil with his right hand. From then on, Bob had a problem with the written part of academics. Orally, he could do anything. He could do his tests, he had absolutely no problems, but he didn't do his homework if it was written. Writing was like a foreign language to him. He'd hear in his own language, have to interpret it, and go into the other. He would have to do some kind of procedure in his brain and process the information. That's kind of an epic excuse, though. I mean, she's basically saying, because my kid couldn't learn to be ambidextrous, he became a murderer. Literally nobody made him use his right hand. Like, just because you say you're right-handed doesn't mean you can just... Well, I write with my left, Oh, so. no, the teacher said I gotta use my right hand because I had a staple in my left hand. Well, my mom actually was forced for a little bit. She's left-handed. She was forced to use her right hand because she went to a Catholic school. Yeah, and lefties are the demons. Well, yeah, well, when my mom told my grandma that, my grandma marched down there. and I'm pretty sure she bitch-slapped the nun and sent her straight to hell. But um, <laughs> Your grandma slapped a nun straight to hell? I don't know if I really want to say that, but... <laughs> I assume she could have. She probably had that power. But I assume that your mom's grades didn't immediately <laughs> drop into failure territory just because she had to use her right hand. No, I'm actually sure my mom is partially ambidextrous like because of that. <laughs> yeah, because any normal person, even if they're like, oh shit, I got to use this hand now. After a while, they just pick it up. They're not like, oh no, I can't be with the left hand. I can't use the right hand. I don't even know. Where is he from? <laughs> Where is Tiny Fry from? <laughs> Small <laughs> Fry, Katie. Tiny Small Fry. Small Fry, yeah. She also recalled the life-changing event he had experienced when he was three. He and his siblings were being watched by a babysitter who decided to invite her brothers to the home. The brothers placed ketchup on their heads and stood at the end of a dark hallway waiting for Fry. When he approached, they turned the light on and he was terrified. According to Gloria, he refused to be alone or sleep in his bed by himself at night after that and was completely opposite of the independent child he had been before the incident. Mortusecusophobia. The fuck are you trying to say there? Mortusecusophobia. Uh, that is the phobia of ketchup. Comes from the Australian slang for dead horse, which means red sauce. So I think it would be mortus equisphobia. Mortus equisphobia. Oh, you know what? That makes sense. Yeah. Dead horse, red horse, red sauce. Yeah, that's a good word, though. And uh, I knew it had to exist when I heard about this. I'm going to go ahead and put it out that all fries are afraid of ketchup. He continued to be bullied into his early teens and gained a significant amount of weight because of it, which only brought more bullying. He had no friends, so he began making up wild and extravagant stories to tell his classmates. I know what it's like to be bullied for your weight, so... <laughs> you don't, you fat bitch. Shut up. <laughs> Eventually, this brought him a small group of friends and allowed him enough social standing to start bullying to make up for the years he'd been bullied. So the abused becomes the abuser. Did he slap on a trench coat and listen to a bunch of ICP? Kind of feel like we could uh, call this story Whoop Whoop the First Low. <laughs> <laughs> whoop Whoop, no. <laughs> At 18, he became a volunteer firefighter and witnessed four fatalities. He didn't do this long and moved on to just hanging out with friends. I actually read somewhere, he said, It wasn't so much the dead bodies that got to me, but there was just so much ketchup. The book described him as rowdy, but in reality, Fry liked to play Dungeons and Dragons with his friends. That's rowdy, isn't it? He tended to hang out with younger people, including girls, and provide them alcohol. At one point, he dated a 16-year-old named Alexis, who he took to a party and got drunk. She passed out, and when she woke up the next morning, she knew Fry had raped her. He asked me, it sounds like this asshole is basically just a lumpy, frumpy, dumpy rapist. Now I remember kind of creepy 
25 year old guys that would hang out with 16 year old girls and stuff when i was growing up and it's always been creepy to me like it still is really creepy it's creepy yeah in his 20s fry developed a drinking problem and became agitated and violent when drunk it was around this time he began trying to convince his Dungeons and Dragons friends that they should act out their games with real knives and swords. Murder LARP? Yeah, I mean, sounds pretty great to me. Someone should have told him that actual LARP exists. There wasn't there was an in between, right, between Dungeons and Dragons and just killing people. I think there's like LARP wasn't really a huge thing kind of stuck in renaissance fairs at this time. Was it? Maybe. I thought nerds have always been there. I mean, they have, but they haven't always had, like, the ability to gather and form up and create. I don't know. Parks have always been there. Wooden swords have always been there. Shields and costumes have always been there. I went to a park (laughs) one time, and there was, like, at least 100 people LARPing, and probably the most uncomfortable experience I've ever walked into. Yeah, what park were we at where there were people LARPing? Was it Reed Park? I think it was. That's usually where they like to go. Yeah, yeah, I remember it was in the mornings when we used to play kickball. Cordon off a whole ass area of the of the park in LARP. He always told unbelievable stories, but now he was telling people he'd committed murders. Of course, no one believed him and had no idea that one day he'd be telling them the truth. Some of his friends might have missed some signs, or his so-called friends. He had some people that did some horrible things with him. I guess those could be his friends. They stuck around and kept coming back. When he was confessing to these murders, is there any chance that these could be true and just overlooked at the time right now? No, not really. No, they were just, all just bullshit. Just him bullshitting. Okay. He was still a small fry. After experimenting with marijuana, cocaine, meth, LSD, and mushrooms, Fry decided to join the Navy in 1992. Can you imagine tripping so hard that you just decide to try to get your life together? That's like not the end of that sentence you would expect. Like, I tried all these drugs, and then I joined the Navy. And now I'm going to join the Navy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was like, which one of those drugs made him be like, I want to be on a ship? After his training, he joined a crew on a submarine in Guam. His drinking followed him there, and he would often oversleep and miss his assignments. Oversleeping on a submarine, overdrinking on a submarine. I feel like those are two really hard fucking things to do. I mean, they would let him into the mainland. They would let him onto the island or... So he just didn't be... drink on the submarine. Oh, okay. He went I, to I, a bar and drank. I literally just imagined them in the ocean and him. Well, because, I mean, you're on duty, so if they can't find you, the submarine's not that big. They never actually, like, sent the submarine out. It was stationed the entire yeah, time. Yeah, see, because I was picturing them, like, jetting through the ocean, and he's just fucking sleeping on the job because he got really hammered in this little tiny submarine. No, we tend to just keep submarines with crews on them, but never actually do anything with them. Interesting. The final straw was when he got into a bar fight and broke a man's nose. He was dishonorably discharged and sent back home to Farmington in 1994. Fry worked menial jobs after his discharge, and his drinking only continued to get worse. On November 29, 1996, Thanksgiving Day, Fry and a group of friends had been partying in an apartment. Fry convinced Harold Pollock to go with him into town to find a prostitute to bring back with them. So just one prostitute for the both of those guys? I, yeah, I guess. They didn't explain their reasoning behind Even... how many. The two drove around town for a while, but being a holiday and snowing, there were no women working. Instead, they stopped at a local shop called The Eclectic. The Eclectic was basically an occult shop mixed with a board game shop. That actually kind of sounds fun. Yeah, it's like Amazing Discoveries that we have here in Tucson. They used to sell baseball cards when I was a kid. I don't think I've ever been to Amazing Discoveries. It's basically all like board games and magic. They sold collectibles like knives and swords along with books and games. They hosted many of the local Dungeons and Dragons games and Fry was good friends with the two men working that night, Joseph Fleming and Matt Trekker. By good friends, do you mean they sold him entire paychecks worth of nerdy shit every other Friday? Rice said he just needed to stop to use the restroom, but once he was inside, he stole multiple knives. 
When he and Pollock left, Fry was concerned they would be caught for the theft, so he drove them to a desolate area and buried the knives. So like a dog who steals the shit off the counter, but then immediately goes out, buries it in the yard, never to see it again, he lost his booty. On the way back into town, Fry once again said he needed to stop and use the restroom. While Pollock was in the restroom, he heard a commotion out in the store. When he went to see what was going on, he saw Fry and Joseph Fleming bloody and fighting with each other. At one point, Fry got his hands around Joseph's neck and began choking him. When he fell to the floor, Fry used his heavy work boot to crush Joseph's neck and most likely kill him. Now this is over the stolen knives, right? I don't think Joseph knew that he had stolen anything. I think Fry literally just went in there and started shit. Yeah, just wanted to kill him. Or at least beat him and then ended up killing him. I know exactly what happened. He went in there and was like, Alan Moore is overrated. And then they just started <laughs> fucking scrapping. The other store employee, Matt Trecker, had been in another room asleep. He came out when he heard the men fighting and was met by a sucker punch from Fry, which immediately knocked him out. Fry then turned back to Joseph, took out a knife, and slit his throat. He then went to Matt and stabbed him once. He called Pollock over and ordered him to stab Matt, which he did three or four times. That's fucking brutal. This dude just did it without like without question. He's like, fuck yeah, I'm stabbing this guy too. I wonder if what ran through his head was like, holy shit, this giant dumpy fuck is going to murder me if I don't go stab this dude four times. Exactly. If he's trying to hand you a knife, it's probably better to just take the knife. Then Fry went to a display and took out two swords, handing one to Pollock and saying, let's cut his head off. They both attempted to cut through his neck, but were unable to do so and eventually gave up. See, that's what I'm saying. If these were his like good friends i can't imagine what he would do to someone that he even mildly disliked he wants to cut these dudes heads off i mean he tried let's cut these dudes heads off he said i mean we're gonna get into what he did to people he mildly disliked they began trying to cover the evidence of them being there so they could leave i wonder what they did to clean up a nerd store of blood they're standing there i cast a level 12 summoning clean spell and then they freaked out when it didn't work and just left? Or did they like, actually go through and like clean stuff up they touched? Or Yeah, they wiped all the blood off all the swords and the knives and cleaned <laughs> their just fingerprints. Put them back? I think so, yeah. Oh what are you going to do? Take the swords you just tried to cut someone's head off with? Um, yeah. You wave the swords like wands while you say, Fabuloso! Fry found the keys to the front door, but when he tried to unlock it, the key broke off in the lock. Now, I kind of picture this guy as a giant fucking Lenny from of Mice and Men who just can't do shit without fucking being a bull in a china shop. Got these big old hands. Yeah. I turned the key too hard. <laughs> hey, I have broken keys off in locks, okay? It's not, well, it's not a I laughing mean, matter. It's frustrating unless you have a perfectly shaped magnet. I'm sure it happens to Lenny's all over the place. The only other door to the building was alarmed and neither knew the code. Realizing they were trapped and the sun was going to come up quickly, they threw a computer monitor through the glass window and climbed out. And they left the bodies just in the shop right there? Yeah. Threw a 50-pound monitor through there. <laughs> now free, they drove to a lake and threw the bloody knives into the water. They stopped at a gas station where Fry noticed the blood on his face and joked it was war paint. While checking out, he realized he didn't have his wallet and thought he'd lost it at the eclectic. The two men went back, climbing through the window, and looked around. Neither found the wallet, so they left once again completely unnoticed. Not a lot of business at the old nerd and stop, is there? It's the middle of the night. Yeah, it was like 4 o'clock in the morning at this point. Okay. I guess they could still be playing D&D &D at that point. Fry finally took them back to the apartment where he threatened to kill Pollock and his family if he told anyone what they'd done. Oh, Bobby Boy Fry really has a way with his friends, huh? 
Around 5 a.m., a police officer drove by the eclectic and noticed nothing. So the cop didn't even look, I guess, at the shop, because otherwise he probably would have seen the monitor, presumably sitting on the ground, the broken glass. Pretty much, yeah. An obvious crime scene. Yeah. It wasn't until a local business owner noticed the window around 7 a.m. that police were notified there had been a break-in. When they walked inside, they found both Joseph Fleming and Matt Trecker dead on the floor. As the crowd outside grew, Fry showed up and comforted Joseph's girlfriend as she learned he was dead. Days later, he also attended the funeral of both men. Now, did he do this just to get his rocks off? No. He just went. I think he probably to take suspicion off himself. He just wanted to see them without all the ketchup on their faces. Mm. Both Fry and Pollock were both considered persons of interest because they were the last two people to see the men alive. Do we know who saw Fry and Paul Pollock with the victims? I don't specifically know. Unfortunately, rumors began to fly about the owners of the Eclectic having a hit out on them, employees being involved in gangs, and it being an occult sacrifice. Do most D&D nerds have gang affiliations? Yeah, jugglers. Um, so is this just like satanic panic leftovers that won't go away? It was just because of the shop that they were in. They sold like the satanic Bible and witchcraft stuff, so... It's of the devil! They kind of just figured. Since there was no logical motive behind the murders, Fry and Pollock weren't at the top of the suspect list. Fry was asked to take a polygraph, which he passed, dropping them even farther off police's radar. Now, can that happen when a person has psychopathic temp tendencies? Mm-hmm. Okay. Even when you don't, some people can pass a polygraph, just because some people are better liars. Christina Trecker, Matt's mother, felt police weren't doing enough and believed that Fry and Pollock were more involved than detectives believed. One of Matt's friends told her that on the day of his funeral, Fry stayed behind and dropped something into his grave before he was buried. Christina attempted to get the grave exhumed, but police told her it would be too expensive and require a court order that wasn't necessary because they weren't looking into Fry. Another person came forward and told Christina Fry was at a nightclub dancing with a woman when he asked her, quote, how does it feel dancing with a killer? I guess this is about as good as time as it as good a time as any to ask, did Robert have any known history of mental illnesses, or is he just a sociopathic narcissist asshole? He was never seen by a psychiatrist, so we don't know exactly what his diagnosis is. Get out there, people. Get yourselves checked out by a psychiatrist to find out if you are a psychopath. One person who took interest in Fry was Detective Bob Melton. He had joined the case from San Juan County as he was an experienced homicide detective. He knew Fry from the multiple DUIs he'd gotten in San Juan County and would be instrumental in later cases. As 1997 approached, Harold Pollock moved to Phoenix, Arizona, and detectives were nowhere near closer to solving the murder of Joseph Fleming and Matt Trecker. September 2nd, 1997 was a normal evening for Robert Fry. He had been drinking heavily and was now driving around Farmington looking for something to do. He spotted Rhonda Knott, who he'd worked with when he was a bouncer at a local club. He'd asked her on multiple dates, but she declined every time. Rhonda was walking down the street, headed home from work around 10 p.m. when Fry pulled up next to her and offered her a ride. She accepted, and he drove her to a nearby field where they stopped to talk. After they'd been sitting there for a few minutes, Fry pulled out a three fifty seven handgun and pointed it to her head. For the next 15 minutes, he rambled and slowly took his clothes off. What do you think those ramblings sounded like, Katie? Once Rhonda saw a chance, she got out of the car and started running. Fry jumped out after her, chasing her with a gun in hand. Bypasser saw the gun and called police, who arrived quickly and arrested Fry. Rhonda told them what had happened, saying Fry had grown extremely upset because he'd seen in the local paper Rhonda had been arrested for prostitution and he wanted to be her pimp. 
At the station, Fry claimed that he was Jesus and wanted to save Rhonda. He hadn't told her he wanted to be her pimp. He said he would kill her pimp or anyone that might try to hurt her. He told her he had a gun and he was going to use it to save all prostitutes. He apparently had given her money, but not for sex, despite his pants being partially taken off. When officers asked if he would take a breathalyzer, he agreed and told them he was somewhere around a .17. When he actually took the test, he blew a .18. Honestly, though, that is a pro guess. Like, this guy was accurate within a tenth. Officers called Rhonda, who asked them if Fry had any blood on his hands. When they said no, she told them that he raped her with a metal rebar and she was bleeding. She refused to go to the hospital and hung up when the officer insisted. Fry was let out on bail not long after his arrest and wouldn't go to trial for almost a year and a half. After requesting two extensions, most likely so Rhonda would forget parts of the story and have a harder time testifying, the trial date was set for February 7, 1999. When he finally did go to trial, Rhonda was extremely uncooperative during her testimony, leading Fry to be found not guilty of assault with a deadly weapon, kidnapping, and sexual penetration with a foreign object. He was found guilty of illegal use of a firearm and driving while intoxicated. In total, he received 543 days in jail and was to be on supervised probation for a year after his release. So why was Rhonda so uncooperative and essentially, like, tank her own case? Uh, Did he intimidate her into letting it, like, just dropping it, or...? No, I think she probably just didn't really enjoy being around police or in front of a court. Most people in that situation, like prostitutes, really avoid police contact as much as possible, even when it's to their detriment. Fry didn't immediately go to jail after being sentenced and continued to drink as usual. On March 31st, 1998, he and his friend Leslie Ng had been drinking until last call at 2 a.m. After they left the bar, they drove around Farmington until Fry suggested they find a Native American to roll or beat a somewhat popular practice around the area. Sounds pretty racist. Jesus Christ, New Mexico, come on. It's not just New Mexico, it's anywhere with Native American reservations. Donald Sosi was in Farmington from Shiprock, New Mexico, to visit friends and had also been drinking at a local bar. Fry pulled up to a group of men standing outside and picked out Donald, as he was wearing nice clothes and appeared to have more money than the others. They offered him a ride, which he accepted, and the three headed towards the highway. Moral of the story, always dress like a disease-addled street hobo. As Fry drove up a winding road towards an area known as Shannon Bluffs, he suddenly elbowed Donald in the face. The two started fighting while while Fry was still driving and swerving all over the road. Fry suddenly pulled onto a narrow, bumpy dirt road on the edge of the cliff and continued driving while fighting Donald. Concerned Fry would drive off the edge of the cliff, Leslie Ng grabbed a belt and wrapped it around Donald's neck from behind. So did Leslie also want to roll a native too, or was he just like... Uh, Was that just a Bobby Boy thing and he happened to be going along with him? Yeah, he pretty much was stuck in the passenger seat without another ride, so... He continued to fight and struggle against the belt while Fry pulled the car over. He was able to fight his way out of the car and continued fighting with Fry, eventually getting him to his knees and continuing to punch him in the face. Fry yelled for Ng to get a shovel out of the rear compartment of the car, which he used to hit Donald in the back and knock him down. This Ng dude is literally the John Stockton of roadside murder. Fry got back up and began hitting and kicking Donald, using the blade of the shovel to hit him in the back. Fry then got a broomstick out of his car and began beating Donald with it, laughing as it shattered with each blow. He then grabbed the broken pieces and stabbed Donald in the face, eye, and genitals. At this point, Donald had no fight left in him, and Fry kicked him to the edge of the cliff. He was still alive when all this? Yeah. Holy shit. They checked his pockets and boots for money, finding only 15 cents. Fry then kicked Donald off the edge of the cliff, tossing his boots down onto his body and laughing when one hit him in the head. Most likely, the fall did not kill Donald, and he lay there until he died from hypothermia. Fuck. That's fucking brutal. Yeah. Just on a whim. I mean, there was multiple. There's one of the most famous cases was, like, the Chokecherry Massacre, 
which is three young-ish kids that killed Native American in a pretty similar fashion. And that one's famous because they got no time for it. So, no, it was relatively common because Native Americans were seen as, number one, easy targets, and number two, they were just basically drunks that provided nothing to society, so killing them wasn't really harming anybody. Brian Ng picked up the broken pieces of broomstick and tossed them in a river before driving to an all-night cafe for food. While Ng went and sat with another group of friends, Bry sat down with a man he knew and told him what he'd just done. Since he was known to tell outlandish stories, the man didn't believe a word Fry said. That's a side effect of blowing smoke up everyone's ass all the time, is that when you're, no one believes you when you're trying to tell them about the murder that you just committed. Which is strange to go bragging to everyone about it anyways, but if you're going to brag, you want people to listen, but now they're like, yeah, that's... A few days after the murder, Fry went to check in and see if Donald's body was still there. He told friends that it had been eaten by coyotes. About a week and a half after his death, Donald's body was discovered by a man hiking in the area. He originally didn't report it because he had a warrant, decided, but decided on April 29th he needed to go to police. So he was worried about his warrant, didn't go to the police. Um, I'm going to go ahead and say... To anyone out there with warrants, if you find a dead body, the police are going to care more about the dead body than about what your stupid warrant's for unless you murdered someone, too. Plus, you can call 88 Crime and report yeah. that shit anonymously. Yeah, definitely call 88 Crime because this guy got arrested on his warrant. Well, I mean, <laughs> you do have an, a warrant out yeah, for your arrest. Yeah, you're still going to have to squash that warrant. It's, it's, your, it's your civic duty to provide closure for someone, someone's family when you find a dead body. When crime scene techs got to the area, they didn't have much to go on. Because everything had been exposed to the elements for a month, only a few items could be fingerprinted, and the prints all came back to Donald. The case was cold before police could even figure out what happened. They didn't have Donald's prints in the uh, system, or they did? They didn't, know, but I mean they fingerprinted everything and it only matched him. Fortunately for everyone in Farmington, Fry's jail sentence began in April. He served his time peacefully and was released in the spring of 2000. On May 1st, he told yet another friend about murdering Donald, this time saying that Ng had started it by choking the man and, had j and he had jumped in to help. He mentioned it again while visiting a friend in Durango, Colorado in mid-May, laughing in an America's Funniest Home Videos clip of a man getting hit in the head with a shoe and saying he'd done that to a man he killed. Why would you just go bragging about that? I don't get it. This dude brags about everything he's done so far. Yeah, and that was the worst part because police intentionally didn't mention his shoes laying around his body, Donald's shoes. So anyone that came forward with the story about his shoes hitting him in the head, they basically knew that they had their perpetrator. Once he was back in Farmington, Fry continued his life as usual, drinking every single night. It was no different on June 8, 2000, and Leslie Ng was, for some reason, still hanging out with him. The two stayed out until the bars closed, then went to the 24-hour cafe. While there, Fry got into a verbal argument with another man, shouting, Someone is going to die tonight! Before storming out of the building, followed by Ng, they went to a gas station and Ng went inside to buy a pack of cigarettes. When he came back out, he found Fry talking to a Native American woman who was crying at a payphone. Her name was Betty Lee, and she'd come to Farmington from Shiprock with two friends to go to the bars. Her friends had both met men and gone home with them, leaving Betty without a ride home. Fry offered to drive her, and she happily accepted. Fry drove down the highway for a while before bowling off onto a dirt country road and driving for a few miles. Betty knew that she was in danger at this point, despite Fry telling her he just had to urinate. When he stopped the car, she got out and began running back to the highway. Fry got back into the car and drove to her, apologizing for scaring her, but ensuring her he just needed to pee and they'd keep going. She relaxed a bit and agreed to get back into the car. 
Fry did get out and use the restroom before they drove down the road towards the highway for a bit. Fry suddenly stopped the car, getting out and walking to the passenger side and pulling Betty out of, out by her hair. Ng was instructed to grab her legs, which she did. She, Again with the assist. She continued to struggle, so Fry pulled a knife out and stabbed her in the chest. Somehow she got away, pulling a knife out and throwing it into a ravine. Fry told Ng to find the knife and went back to his car for a sledgehammer. He caught up to Betty, who was stumbling down the road, and tripped her. Fry stood above her, bringing the sledgehammer down onto her head multiple times, killing her. Holy fuck, that's brutal. Fry and Ng drugged Betty's body into bushes and kicked her clothing into a ravine. As they tried leaving the crime scene, Fry's car got stuck in the deep sand and he was forced to call his parents. They came and picked the two up, taking Ng home and Fry to change clothes before going back with a truck to get the car out. Back at the scene, the sand was so deep that Fry's father's truck got stuck in it too. They called a tow truck to get both cars free, which also got stuck. Jesus, it's just like a like a row of stuck vehicles next to the road in the sand or and a murdered woman in the bushes like 120 feet away. Yeah. Jeez. That'd be a pr- pr- kind of like nerve-wracking. Finally, the tow truck driver called another man with a larger tow truck who was able to get all three vehicles free. After getting the cars unstuck, the second tow truck driver attempted to make a phone call but wasn't able to because of the poor reception. He became irritated and tossed the phone down onto the ground, leaving it there before driving off. Just throwing out a phone every time it dropped a call around the turn of the century. Can you imagine? Just like how many Nokias archaeologists would find in a couple hundred years? Around 7 a.m., a P&M employee driving down the road noticed a large blunt stain in the dirt. Thinking someone had killed a deer, he followed the drag marks off to the bushes and noticed a human foot sticking out. This is literally the second straight case we've had where bodies are just left with limbs sticking out of the ground. He immediately called police, who arrived and found Betty Lee's body. While investigating, Gloria Fry, Robert's mother, showed up to the scene to see what the commotion was about. It's because of her being there that prosecutors would later consider charging her with evidence tampering, nading, and abetting. It's still unknown if she knew what Fry had done or ever even asked what he was doing on that dirt road so late at night. She claimed she had never asked him. I call bullshit. I bet she asked, and he told some wild-ass story that she never believed, and so she came back to check out and see what the real story was when she found out police were there. That makes sense. She was like, there is no no way, because like, we've all made up stories to our parents, and then when you look back on it, you're like, that was a really terrible story. Oh, yeah. Every fucking story I told my mom, I'm pretty sure she knows is bullshit. She was also really close with police because of her women's shelter, so... Mm-hmm. It's possible that he had told her what he had done, and she had gone out to see what they had found so far, basically, and whether or not he was going to get caught for it. Well, didn't she kind of refuse to see the bad in him and, like, everything, though? I mean, she could have easily not seen the bad in him and made an excuse for why he murdered a woman. Yeah. Ah, I... Actually, that never occurred to me. She could just be racist the whole time, and he told her, yeah, I accidentally killed a native girl. And she was like, oh, okay. After investigating the crime scene, officers noticed tire tracks leading away from the scene. They followed them up to the road where the cars had been stuck and where the tow truck driver had thrown his phone. They picked it up and quickly obtained a warrant to search it. The driver told them why the phone had been there, giving police the entire Fry family's names. Detectives went to their home and got consent from the family to search Fry's room. After digging through huge piles of clothes, they found a misfit shirt and shoes with blood on them. Now, that could have been found any any nerdy ginger teenagers 
clothes at any given time. Fry lied, saying that they had picked up a man named Ryan and he'd only gone down the road to urinate. When Fry mentioned Leslie Ng's name, it sounded familiar to one detective, so he searched their system. Oddly enough, Ng had been arrested on a warrant totally unrelated to the murder right after being dropped off at his home by Fry's parents. He was interviewed in the jail and also lied, giving a very different story than Fry had. Once he realized he was in deep shit, he recanted the fake story and told police everything. Now, if you were to ever murder someone with someone else, before you leave the scene, you get your fucking story straight. I mean, that's just obvious. Like, if you don't do that, yeah, you're fucked. And you gotta keep the story straightforward. Yeah. But it is hard to get the story straight when you literally have your mom picking you up from your most recent murder. Yeah, it's hard to plan your story when, oh shit, my oh, mom's I need a there. Ride. Yeah. Come pick me up. Get my car stuck killing this native girl. Okay, honey, I'll be there shortly. Did you say you were carrying a boatload of children down to the hospital? Oh, jeez. Okay, I'll be there shortly. Fry was arrested on June 11, 2000. Once the news of murder hit the papers, his friends who had never believed his stories before began to question if he'd been telling the truth. One of them came forward and told him Fry had admitted to killing a man in Shannon Bluffs. Detectives went to Ng before Fry, who of course lied again. After a few hours of consideration, he gave them the full story. Since Fry had killed two Native Americans, the DA began looking into charging Fry with a hate crime and filed their letter of intent to seek the death penalty on July 12th. I think it's fair to say it was a hate crime since he literally went out looking for a Native American individual to commit these crimes against. I think the first one, maybe the second one, just happened to be, he just happened to chance across an opportunity. Basically, yeah, most of these were just crimes of opportunity. Otherwise, he would have not killed two white men in the... Eclectic. Uh, I guess that's true, especially dudes who were supposedly his friends. By November, detectives were still interested in connecting Fry to the Eclectic murders. They managed to track down Harold Pollock and found he was in Farmington for Thanksgiving. After being granted immunity, Pollock told them what had happened four years earlier, leaving out the part where he was involved. Did they ask how he knew all the shit that he knew about the murder if he wasn't there or involved? Or? He said he was there, he just wasn't involved in killing anybody. I guess, too, with how much uh, Bobby Boy tells everybody everything he could. Yeah, he just admitted to it. And... He said, I was there, I watched the whole thing, but I didn't participate. I wasn't involved in no. the murder. Fry was now facing four separate first-degree murder charges, plus evidence tampering, larceny, and intimidation of witnesses. Neither Fry or Ng did well in jail, with Fry being caught with an 8-inch shank, and Ng being charged with attempted criminal sexual penetration, extortion, and assault and battery when he tried to rape another inmate. Seriously, fuck these guys, though. Right before he was supposed to go to trial, Fry was offered the option to plead guilty and avoid the possibility of the death sentence. He declined and said he wanted to take his chances at trial. He was tried first for Betty Lee's murder and after five hours of deliberation was found guilty. After taking his chance with a jury, he was sentenced to death. The jury for Donald Sosie's trial also found him guilty, but was unable to reach a unanimous decision, and Fry was sentenced to life. In April of 2004, Harold Pollock told detectives he had in fact been involved in Matt Trecker's death. His immunity deal was required he not be involved in any way, so it was revoked and he was arrested on the spot. He actually took an Alfred plea and pled guilty to accessory, receiving a sentence of life. He will be eligible for parole sometime around 2034. What's the Alfred plea again? That's when you basically say that you're not guilty of a crime, but the state has enough evidence to prove you guilty, so you plead to a lesser charge and just accept the time that they give you. So his lesser charge was accessory to murder. Instead of first degree, yeah. Okay. That's the same thing as they did with the Eccles, Damian Eccles. Yeah. 
All, all three of them. All three of the West Memphis three. Uh, sweet, I guess. I don't know. I don't think that guy should have been able to. He should have gotten what he had coming to him. He kind of did. Fry was sentenced to life for the deaths of Joseph Fleming and Matt Trecker. In 2009, New Mexico abolished the death penalty, and Fry's sentence was lessened to life. I'm going to go ahead and say this guy probably should have died. I'm going to agree with that, actually. I feel like he had it coming. He fucking had it coming. So where are these assholes now? They are all still in prison. Just rotting away? Basically, yeah. He, I don't think, is ever going to be eligible for parole, but Pollock will be. Like I said, in around 2034, but it's unlikely they're going to grant it. So is that going to do it for Robert Fry? Mm-hmm. All right, everybody. Well, thank you for listening this week. And if you, as always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to send us an email at fourcornerscrimecast at gmail.com. That's F-O-U-R cornerscrimecast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash fourcornerscrimecast, on Instagram at fourcornerscrimecast, and on Twitter at fourcornerscrime with the number four. Nice, nice. And give us a rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Spotify and check out our new website, fourcornerscrimecast.com, F-O-U-R, cornerscrimecast.com. Head over there for a full episode list to send us ideas for an episode or to get your free sticker from our merch store. Just enter... Bingo Bango at checkout, and we'll ship you your sticker 100% free. So, I think that's going to do it for this week. All right, guys. Thank you for listening. See ya. Adios, motherfuckers. Well, my 16th level wizard mage class will actually go ahead and obviously roll 20 on this next one and get us out of this situation. <laughs>